Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the program with Carrie Figder, Alexis McLeod, and Sarah Tyson. My guest today is Patricia Marino. Patricia is professor of philosophy at the University of Waterloo in Canada. Her research spans ethics, epistemology, and the philosophy of economics. But in addition, Patricia also works on the philosophy of sex and love. Her new book is titled Philosophy of Sex and Love, an Opinionated Introduction. It's just been published by Routledge. Now, for those who think that philosophy must speak to everyday experience and ordinary life, it would seem that philosophical questions occasioned by love and sex should take center stage. Moral, epistemic, metaphysical, and political issues surrounding sex and love pervade our culture. Where would pop music, television, and even fine art be without the dilemmas at the intersection of love and sex? And yet there are some less familiar philosophical issues lurking there as well. In her book, Philosophy of Sex and Love, Patricia Marino not only introduces a wide range of philosophical issues pertaining to love and sex, she also develops original and compelling positions on these questions. There's a lot to talk about. But why don't we begin where we usually do, which is with our guest. Hello, Patricia. Hello. How are you today? I'm fine. How are you? I'm doing great. Um, Why don't you start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Okay. Um, I was born in Boston, Massachusetts, uh, but moved around a lot as a young child, which I think probably has influenced the way I think about philosophy. Hmm. Uh, Mostly, I moved around different parts of the United States, lived in Connecticut, New Orleans, Buffalo, Southern California, and the Bay Area. Finally, in 2004, I got this job at the University of Waterloo, and I moved to Canada. And so I now live in Toronto. And and one thing that's very interesting to me is that, um, you know, Canada and the United States are very similar in certain superficial ways, but they're also very different in other ways. And so it's it was a big adjustment, uh, especially teaching in Canada, to kind of learn and get up to speed on the social and political differences here to sort of be able to connect with the students. So I had a lot of work to do when I first started teaching here to kind of connect with what the Canadian landscape is as opposed to the U.S. landscape. Um, I also had an unusual path to studying philosophy. So when I was young, I was interested in mathematics. I actually did an undergraduate degree majoring in mathematics and didn't take any philosophy courses. Well, I took one philosophy course that I didn't really know how to choose which course to take. So I just selected, it was like a history from Descartes to Hume course. Mm. Um, And for various reasons, that subject didn't interest me. And so I thought, oh, I don't like philosophy. So I majored, I actually double majored in math and dance. Um, Some of my studies in dance actually prepared me quite well for philosophy because we read things like Foucault and sort of um, his philosophy of art kind of Mm. topics, which was great. Um, I then thought I was going to do graduate school. I thought I was going to be a mathematician. So I went to graduate school first at Tulane. I did a master's degree focusing on topology. Uh, And then I wanted to work in set theory. So I went to SUNY Buffalo and began a PhD program there. And it was when I was in the PhD program at SUNY Buffalo that I was working with someone who uh, whose research had to do with the existence of um, cardinal numbers that whose, whose in, existence is independent of the axioms of set theory. So hmm. it's questions that can't be decided one way or another from the basic axioms. And that seemed to me such an interesting philosophical question. And I began to read some of the philosophy that's been written on that question, uh, questions about mathematical truth, about the nature of proof, and so on. And that's what first got me interested in philosophy. 
So I actually decided to switch out of that PhD program and begin a PhD program in philosophy. So I went to the University of California, Irvine, uh, and joined their Logic and Philosophy of Science program, working with Penelope Maddie. I thought that I would uh, be doing research mostly on philosophy of mathematics. So while I was there, I once I started studying philosophy, I became interested in many, many different topics. Uh, and so for my dissertation, I wrote a dissertation on theories of truth because I thought that would help me understand the problem of mathematical truth and existence. So I was interested in the fact that we don't really know what numbers are. And if we don't know what numbers are, what makes mathematical statements true? So some people think that if you take up a different theory of truth, that problem either looks different or easier. So that's the kind of question I engaged in my dissertation. But I realized in writing my dissertation that uh, metaethics had many of the similar kind of challenges and problems that, that mathematics does. And it was an area that more people were interested in. And so that kind of influenced me to start working more in ethics. And um, that's sort of how I first got working in like other topics beyond uh, philosophy of math kind of stuff. So I now work on, as you were mentioning at the start, I now work on a, a lot of different topics. So uh, partly I work on ethical theory. I wrote a book on um, moral reasoning in a pluralistic world. That book considers how we should reason morally in a pluralistic context where we share multiple values like honesty, fairness, benevolence, and so on, but we interpret and prioritize them in different ways. So it's, it's pluralism, both in the sense of value pluralism and in the sense of helping us to confront the fact that we often disagree in the ethical context. So as I was sort of just around the time that I was finishing my PhD, I really was uh, struck with the desire to do a philosophy that would be read and um, thought about and understood by people beyond the world of other philosophers. Um, one of the things that had really frustrated me about doing philosophy of math, which is a wonderful subject, and I'm going to be teaching it in the fall, but I was frustrated <laughs> at the tiny number of other people who would be both sort of interested and knowledgeable in the right way to engage the things I was thinking about. And so I thought, well, I should maybe try to develop uh, research in an area that people would just be very interested in, even if they didn't know that it was a philosophy problem or didn't think of it as a philosophy problem. And I had always been interested in sex and sexuality. Uh, and so I thought, well, that would be a cool thing to work on. So I really just sort of decided to start working on philosophy of sex and love. And so in some ways that's, um, in some ways, that reflects a kind of separate research project from my other research projects, but in some ways, there's a lot of overlap area. So, for mm -hmm. example, um, I'm right now collaborating on a project that is going to draw on philosophy of love to understand problems that come up in bioethics when family members are influencing decision making. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we tend to think in terms of informed consent. But and when and informed consent is supposed to be autonomous, right? Where some people think that means uninfluenced. But of course, you know, relational theorists have been telling us that, you know, autonomy is also compatible with uh, the kinds of deep relationships and caring relationships that do influence our decision making. And so I thought the understanding, thinking about love could help us understand, you know, when we should think about the influence of family members as benign or coercive. Um, so I'm going to be collaborating with my former graduate student on a project about that. And then I also have found a surprising amount of overlap between my work in philosophy of economics and philosophy of sex and love. So mm -hmm. it was around the time of the financial crisis in 2008 that I was listening to the news and people were talking about economic models having gotten us into so much trouble. And I thought, well, that's a philosophy of math thing. And it's an <laughs> ethics thing, <laughs> both. And I do those two subjects. So I was like, oh, I could think about this. And I, I was um, I very excited to think that like economics is such a great topic for philosophers. So I just started working in that about like I said, 10 years ago, I'm really, it's a, what, it's a, such an important topic of, because of the way economics becomes so central to our sort of social and cultural ways of understanding the world. Like I'm very, I always am noticing how, if you read the newspaper these days, 
uh, and they want some social scientist to comment on a problem, you know, it's very often an economist that they ask, um, where in, you know, 1975, it might have been, I think, a sociologist. So that I think that's a wonderful area. I'm really hoping like, I feel like in North America, there's not as many people working in that area as there are in other parts of the world. And so I'm hoping it'll be an area people will get more interested in. So like I said, a surprising degree of overlap between my research in philosophy of sex and love and my research in philosophy of economics. Um, I wrote a paper on love and economics. That's a contribution to the Oxford Handbook of Philosophy of Love uh, that sort of analyzes the way economists like Gary Becker, who are trying to understand the family, model things like altruism, given that economics usually models people as self-interested, you know, how does that become compatible with altruism? And so uh, I think there's a lot of interesting kind of possibilities for the overlap area there as well. So when I first started working on philosophy of sex and love, um, I picked the topic of sexual objectification to focus on first, because it seemed to me like a very interesting and complicated topic. Uh, On the one hand, we use the concept of sexual objectification as a term of criticism to sort of diagnose something that's clearly bad or wrong. But I was also very struck that, you know, people sometimes want to be objectified or they see it as something that could be a good thing. And so it seemed to me to have these different aspects. And that was the sort of question that first got me interested in working on philosophy of sex and love. I see. Can can you tell us a little bit uh, how you came to write the book? Yeah. So as I started getting interested in this topic, um, I was starting to teach at the University of Waterloo and we were doing curriculum changes. And it was actually a colleague of mine who said, why don't you teach a course on philosophy of sex and love? And honestly, I had never thought of that. I was like, what a good idea. So (laughs) I created a course um, on philosophy of sex and love, a a 200 level course. Uh, And that course I've been teaching over, over basically since 2005 or so. And the course attracts a very wide range of students. So that class might have some students in it who are very sophisticated. They spend time at the um, GLOW Center, which is our center for LGBTQ uh, students, you know, and they they know a lot about gender. And um, so they're very sophisticated about these topics. But then there'll also be students in the class who are, you know, engineering majors who maybe know they have done no philosophy or gender theory or they don't know anything about feminism. They're really coming to it for the first time. And so I had to think a lot about how to frame the topic in a way that would engage all those different audience members and also be accessible to the people who are really new at thinking about it. So I wanted to really be able to explain some of the more basic things that are sometimes treated as obvious, but I wanted to be able to say, look, here's the kind of history behind why this is thought about this way, or here are reasons to think about it this way. Um, So over the course of the years teaching that class, uh, there's always been so many interesting contributions from the students. I mean, they clearly love learning from each other about this topic, and they often have very different uh, intuitions or starting places for thinking. And so they're very engaged with hearing from one another. And it's one of my favorite things to, to, uh, to experience when I'm teaching that class. So when I was teaching that class, I, you know, had to, I came to think that um, sort of philosophy of sex and love were relatively understudied, like underappreciated or not as central as they really should be, given how um, important that they are. Um, So I also came to think that the social changes, even just in the last like 20 or 30 years, have made this field really change a lot. So when people started philosophizing about sex and love uh, a lot in the Anglophone analytic tradition in like the late uh, 20th century, there were some questions that got a lot of attention that I don't think get a lot of attention now for reasons. So for instance, uh, there were some research on topics like how should we distinguish normal sex from perverted sex? Right. Now that's a question that might have seemed intuitively important at one time, but I think right now it doesn't have the same resonance or it seems peculiar because now we tend to think, well, as long as everyone's consenting and you're not harming anybody, you know, people are just different. So it's maybe not that useful to try to think in terms of perversion. Um, And then, of course, uh, there's been such radical changes in terms of um, uh, increased equality and 
and um, uh, diversity, especially for same-sex couples, people of different genders. Um, that's created, I think, a whole bunch of new ways of looking at existing research questions. Um, so when I talk about uh, this topic and when I think about how the book should be framed, when I thought about how to frame the book, so I put a lot of thinking into sort of, you know, I have all these chapters I want to talk about about different topics, but how do I want to sort of introduce the framing? And one thing I came to think is that it's important to think about the fact that, you know, before the 20th century in like Western culture, we really had a patriarchal, heteronormative um, set of social values around sex that are very different from the ones that are more common now. Uh, so sex was considered to be appropriate only within marriage. Marriage was considered to be only heterosexual. Um, that setup, I'm, this is one of the themes I kind of talk about in the book and that I'll talk about more later in our conversation. But I think that setup um, had a way of leading to certain framings and conclusions about sex and love that, of course, are no longer relevant to us. Mm. But I think it's easy to underappreciate sort of the things that have been kind of left open and unexplored given the the new kind of social values that we apply. So I think that now it's very common. Of course, not everyone thinks this way. So there's a lot of diversity in how people think about these things, but it's very common now for people to apply a lens of autonomy to sex and love, personal autonomy. So for instance, if you just talk to people about sex and love, and certainly when I talk to my students, there's a very common expression of an idea that the important thing is that people are making their own choices for their own reasons and that they have the freedom to be who they are. So one of the things in framing the book that I was thinking about was the book is not an argument for that view. It's not, it doesn't try to address criticisms uh, of that view, but instead I kind of take it just as a starting point and then kind of explore the implications of adopting it or explore the sort of questions that still remain unaddressed. So I think when you say we should be able to choose for ourselves, I think that's right, but I think it, it leads to a surprising number of sort of either unanswered questions or areas where we think, well, wait, hold on, sex and love, it would lead to that. And is that really the right kind of thing? So a lot of the topics that are in the book and the chapters um, have to do with kind of engaging or confronting, um, you know, the implications of adopting that kind of autonomy view. Great. So, you know, one of the, just to, to pick up on that, sort of one of the themes that runs through the book as well um, sometimes very explicitly, but not always, is um, has to do with the fact that you know, I'm sure some people uh, in our, among our listeners are familiar with um, you know philosophical discussions of love uh, from Plato at least onward, um, and um, I suppose that many also uh, will be aware of work that's been done in philosophy uh, about philosophical issues concerning sex and the commodification of sex and um, uh, various other aspects, uh, philosophical aspects of sex. Um, the, the theme that runs through the book, though, is the intersection of these two kinds of philosophical question. Um, you're ready to acknowledge uh, at the right junctures that um, sex and love occasion different kinds of philosophical questions frequently. But you're also willing, and this is something that was illuminating, uh, at least for me, um, you're also able to show how certain kinds of philosophical issues sort of lie at the intersection, right, of uh, of sex and love, and that these two sort of different, what look like they may be very different sites of philosophical um, inquiry are actually more intertwined than uh, than one might think. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that, especially if I'm make sure I'm getting that right? Is, <laughs> is that a theme running through the book yes, as well? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yes, absolutely. Uh, yes, there are some themes that kind of run through the book that um, do kind of bring sex and love together. Um, so the structure of the book is that there's some early chapters that are mostly about sex, 
objectification, consent, things like that. And then there are some chapters in the middle that kind of focus on love, which we'll talk more about later. And then, um, as you said, there's a bunch of chapters um, that take up topics that really bring sex and love together. So there's a chapter on like sex, love and disability. There's a chapter on racialized dating preferences. There's a chapter on the economics of sex and love. There's a chapter on the medicalization of sex and love. Um, Mm -hmm. We'll be talking later about non-monogamy. There's a discussion of um, orientations and the way that orientations have to do with both sex and love. So I think those later chapters really do, as you say, kind of explore the ways in which the under- our understanding of sex and love go together. Um, it's, it's funny because I'm like the last person in the world who would say that you have to have love in order to have good sex. Like I'm a big like, you know, people can have sex any kind of way they want. So I don't, I don't, that's not the kind of view I'm running. Um, right. So it's interesting that I've ended up as you say, with a philosophical set of views that really does see them as definitely related to one another. So um, I thought I would just say a little bit about the way the, the, the broadest themes of the book kind of bring sex and love together. Great. Um, because there are these sort of, after I wrote these chapters, I really started to think like, what, what brings all this together? You know, what, what am I trying to say that uh, that matters about the way that I'm approaching the topic or the implications of what I was saying before about, you know, adopting this kind of autonomy view. Um, so I think that there are kind of three different sort of broad, broad themes that uh, kind of in, kind of arise over and over uh, and that have to do with seeing sex and love as a kind of social and political philosophy topic as much as anything else. So the book really emphasizes um, understanding the sort of social nature of sex and love and the kind of social values that we use when we apply to it, even when we think we're just doing autonomy. I think there's often, it's often, uh, it's a little obscure, but I think it's true that we are applying our own sort of values and, and, and social values to understanding how we should resolve various either conflicts or disagreements about the way sex and love play a role in our society. So one theme um, had to do with thinking about sex and love in this sort of liberal capitalist kind of structure we find ourselves in. So when I say liberal, I mean like small L, people get to do what they want to do. They can, um, they're free. They should be free to choose what they want to do. Um, and I think, you know, you might think that they move toward autonomy in sex and love would sort of resolve any lingering conflicts because it would fit well. You know, people get to choose for themselves. That's a good fit with liberal capitalism. But, but I think there's values we apply to sex and love that don't really fit that very well. So for instance, um, when people talk about sex and love, there's an idea that comes up all the time that emphasizes mutuality and generosity. So people don't want to think about sex as a kind of tit-for-tat exchange. There seems to be something missing in an understanding of sexuality where people would approach it like, well, if you do this for me, I'll do that for you. Like right. it's like bargaining or an exchange. It seems like something is lost. So I think that's true, but I think it kind of really raises the question of like, what is it about sex that makes it this different kind of site or this different domain where those um, values of freedom of choice and just um, individualism don't necessarily apply. And sort of where, where, do the, where does the um, need for mutuality or generosity come from and, and what are its sort of limits? And so the book does explore sort of um, the, some of the uh, ways that individualism can also lead to kind of unequal access. So in the discussions of like objectification or of sexual racism or of the unequal access people have to sexual pleasure in general, there's a there's a often a sort of discuss, a feeling that sex is special, but but how? So that's one of the mm. questions that I think is really interesting. So another kind of big theme related to that has to do with the way. Th- we understand love in that context. So we're sort of always, I feel like we're constantly bombarded nowadays with like the idea that people are rational, self-interested and, and the way they get the things they want and need in their interna- interactions with others is through a kind of 
contract bargaining, negotiation, you know, deal making. But almost no one thinks that that's how love works. Almost everyone thinks love is supposed to require some completely different way of interacting, some way that you prioritize the other person's needs and concerns. You think of them first, you... Um, uh, you you carve out a space for a relationship that doesn't have that aspect. So I came to think that um, one aspect of that that's very interesting to me is that I think people want to think of the family or the home, like the home of home life as a sort of special zone where mm. that kind of constant competition or, you know, having to negotiate to get you what you want. Like the, the home should be a zone where that set of norms doesn't apply, where people do things for each other out of kindness because they care, etc. Now, I think that the patriarchal, heteronormative, uh, sexist, old way of thinking about sex and marriage surprisingly kind of res- like had a way of resolving some of those questions in the sense that that was a way of creating harmony. It was a bad way of creating harmony, yeah. but it was a way of creating harmony in the sense that... Um, Marriage was understood to merge people's wills, uh, typically with the woman's will being subsumed into that of a man. When I say bad, I just mean sexist in that way. Right. Um, and uh, so there was a kind of harmony. There was a kind of harmony at home that um, the people in a loving relationship, adults in a loving relationship, were seen as truly acting with one kind of spirit. So one of the themes of the book is once you move away from the um, patriarchal heteronormative aspect into a, a context of equality and different gender partnerships, uh, that harmony is surprisingly difficult to restore, or it's hard to think of how love should be understood in a way that would restore that harmony. So I think some of the theories of love that I talk about in the book are kind of attempts to do that. They're kind of attempts to say, well, look, here's what you should be doing when you love someone, and here's why it leads to it leads you to interact with them in this radically different way from the way you would react, uh, interact with someone in, in like public life. It, it's a sort of different from the individualism. So we'll talk more about that when we talk about the theories of love. But I just that's a sort of second theme that I'm interested in is the sort of mm-hmm. difficulty of of carving out that sort of zone of of caring um, when the rest of life is understood in such individualistic terms. And then like a third theme that I think comes up in the book that I think is a very difficult topic that I think is an area where there could be a lot more research has to do with conflicts between <clears throat> like liberty and values like justice and equality. So it's very common to talk about in the rest of political philosophy that you know liberty for the wolves can mean death to the sheep, as Isaiah Berlin said, <laughs> um, and that having more Having more liberty can sometimes mean that there's less equality or less justice or less fairness because people getting to do what they want means that the strong or the people in positions of power or uh, status can have more control. So I think this is actually also true in sex and love and that it's a very difficult uh, topic to kind of grapple with. So I think when people are free to have sex with whoever they want and sort of hook up with whoever they want and love whoever they want, um, and the norms of, of lifelong monogamous marriage that we used to have are gone, one result, I think, is that some people, the people who are seen as attractive or who occupy the dominant race or a position of status or power, may end up with lots and lots of sexual and romantic opportunities, while other people have no romantic or sexual opportunities. So I think one reason that this is very difficult to talk about is that it it's um, it can seem related to problematic male entitlement to sex. So when the like for instance the incel movement right has to do right. with men thinking that they're entitled to sex and being angry when women won't have sex with them so of course that's i that's not what i'm talking about right i don't when i talk about the problem of unequal access to sexual pleasure i don't mean that i think the two things are separable and i think that confronting the issue of general kind of uh um unequal access to sexual and romantic um, pleasure and happiness. I think it really is something that we should talk about. Um, Cause I think it, if you think of sex and love as part of the good things of life, then it really does matter if there are people who 
um, can't really access those things or can't access them in a meaningful way. Right, right. So great. That um, helps to give a sense of the the broad um, themes that run through the book. Um, why don't we talk a little bit about sort of where the book uh, begins, um, which is a couple of chapters, as you've already mentioned, on objectification, which um, I suspect um, reflects um, sort of where uh, people who might pick up a book with the title uh, Philosophy of Sex and Love, they might have started their own philosophical thinking about these topics with um, uh, some discussion of um, objectification. So there are many views, um, uh, and um, I take it most of these views, um, um, sex can involve, maybe often does involve, maybe under uh, patriarchal norms, always would involve um, some kind of uh, objectification of uh, one of the parties involved, and that's problematic. Um, as you point out, there are others, notably Martha Nussbaum, um, who've argued uh, that, yeah, there is objectification, but not all object- objectification is itself objectionable. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how those arguments run? Yeah. So like I was saying before, sexual objectification is like interesting to me because it raises so many interesting issues. Like you were just saying, we tend to think of it some ways of it's often some something bad or wrong, and yet it also can be seen um, as something good. So especially like if lovers are so inflamed by passion, they temporarily fail to attend to their full humanity of their partners, then it can seem like maybe an attractive kind of thing. So in the book, I talk about Cameron Diaz having been quoted as saying, I think every woman wants to be objectified. There's a little part of you at all times that hopes to be somewhat objectified. And I think it's healthy. And I also mentioned like uh, how sometimes men will say, are you kidding? I'd love to be objectified, which, you know, I think I end up thinking is both true and could be, you know, an annoying thing to say. But uh, depending <laughs> right. on the context, depending on the context, because it also could be a, a really meaningful thing to say. Um, so my question kind of was like, well, what is how should we be understanding objectification? And I start by talking a little bit about the history of that concept. Um, so uh, Immanuel Kant, the 18th century philosopher, if you're familiar with his ethics, you might think that he would have thought of sex in terms of consent uh, in the sense that, you know, respecting the other person's autonomy means respecting their decision making. But he also had an idea that sex was inherently dehumanizing in a way. And so one of the things he said was that the nature of the sexual appetite was such that um, after you had sort of satisfied yourself, you would end up throwing away the other person as you throw away a lemon after you've sucked out the juice. And so it's an interesting image. And I, I'm, I've am i always been interested in the fact that it's a, it's a kind of accessible image, even though Kant lived in a different society from ours. Um, I think many people will understand what he means, that sex causes you to be intensely interested in another person in a certain way, where after you have an orgasm or you're no longer sexually aroused, they don't, you, they cease to matter to you in the same way. Um, And so, you know, he thought that that was a sort of problem and the kind of treatment he suggested, not really a solution, but um, a way of dealing with it had to do with marriage and the idea that marriage would cause the married people to have legal obligations to one another, to take them into consideration, to to do certain things for them, to care for them in certain ways, to just at least not throw them away. Um, so, in the twentieth um, century, you know, feminist theorists of objectification, like Catherine McKinnon, took up a really different, but also very interesting perspective, focused more on sexism. So, on the ways that. Uh, uh, patriarchal society had, um, you know, had a setup in which women were just constantly being objectified. So Catherine McKinnon, I quote her in the book, as having said, all women live in sexual objectification the way fish live in water, which right. I think really captures something really interesting and important. So um, in class, when I'm teaching about this subject, you know, I want students, like some students sort of understand that immediately. Some students, I think, don't, you know, they sort of don't, they, if, 
maybe if you're a guy or if you just lived a different kind of life or uh, you have a different background, you might think, well, gee, aren't women always choosing to get dressed up or put on certain kinds of clothes or makeup? Like, what is that? What What's the problem? And so when I'm trying to illustrate that for a class with a wide range of students, I sometimes bring up the Bechtel test for movies. So that was a test created in the 80s where uh, by this wonderful cartoonist, Alison Bechtel, and one character says to the other in the cartoon, yeah, the la- I now only go see movies where there's at least two women in the movie and they have to talk to each other about something other than a man. And the punchline is like the last movie she could see was Alien because there was the women were talking about the monster. (laughs) And so um, it's a great thing to bring up in class because everybody can then discuss like what's the last, you know, Hollywood movie that you saw. Um, And, uh, you know, there's a few more. I feel like Ghostbusters came out, right? There's a couple of more options now maybe than there were even a few years ago. But it's very vivid to realize how few movies pass the test. And I emphasize in class that bringing that up in this context, we're not blaming any filmmakers. Like that's not, it's not about blaming anybody. It's about the ways that the film industry reflects things about our society. And one of the things that it's reflecting is that women are valued as, you know, love interests or sex interests and um, sort of seen through that lens really disproportionately. So um, the, the, when Martha Nussbaum wrote her article in 1990s, um, I think, you know, one of the starting points for her was this idea that I mentioned at the start that sexual objectification seems wrong, but it doesn't seem always wrong. And, um, and, and, and talking about it in a too narrow kind of way, we, we, we can't really understand that. So she was interested to talk about the context and tone and the way those matter and the fact that there could be different kinds of objectification. So she has one really great example where she says, you know, imagine a man saying to a woman, you don't need to go to the interview. You could just send them some pictures. And in one, you know, in one context, that could be a really sexist, objectifying thing to say, as because it, it, it's denying that her uh, intellect, say, matters, right, and implying that it's just her appearance that matters. But in a completely different kind of context, it could be a loving thing to say, like if the people have a relationship in which they respect one another's intellects all the time, then it could be a kind of loving joke, right, trying to right. say how attractive she is or something like that. So. Nisman thinks that you need a theory of objectification that sort of takes all those things into account. And she ends up teasing out, you know, the difference between instrumental instrumentalization, um, using someone as a tool of your purposes, denial of autonomy, kind of steamrolling over their, their, their decision making, um, inertness and fungibility, you know, treating people as passive or interchangeable. So she tries to distinguish all these different forms of objectification. And she tries to talk about how context and tone matter in thinking about whether they're good or bad. So where I agree with her completely is that context and tone matter a huge amount. And the context can really affect how uh, an act of objectification seems or is, uh, where I kind of depart from her is in thinking about what the context is that matters and why it matters. So Nussbaum talks a lot about um, the nature of the relationship of the people who are who are interacting with one another and how a, a context of a relationship with respect and equality and symmetry um, can create the context within which an act of objectification can be shifted from being bad to being something benign or even really great. And uh, I guess where I sort of disagree with that is on putting so much emphasis on the context of the relationship itself. So there's sort of two reasons I have for that. And one has to do with um, uh the fact that I think intimate relationships can, they can create the conditions under which it is hard to say no to people. So I think when you're, um, when you're exercising your autonomous consent um, and some, if some stranger asks you to engage in some sexual objectifying act that you don't really like, and it's like a one night stand, you know, I think you just say, no, I don't want to do that. Uh, but if you're, you know, in a in an intimate, caring, long-term relationship with someone, this, you know, it's often you care about them, so it becomes a little harder to to say, oh, I don't want to do that, or that feels objectifying or wrong. So I think intimacy can create its own 
challenges. And then the other reason is that I think that the sort of background culture and social context also make a huge difference. So I kind of developed the idea that uh, what matters is sort of autonomous consent. But if you live in a society that's, you know, always objectifying you or treating people like you as a sex object, then you kind of can't opt out. And so your autonomy, you can't really autonomously opt in either. So I think that's one way to sort of help us understand when, when, when men say, I'd love to be objectified, uh, the sense in which I think that's completely true and a completely reasonable thing to say is um, it can be wonderful to be objectified. The problem is when you're just always treated as an object or just, you know, too much treated as an object or seen that way too much. Uh, and then you can't really choose it because it's just being forced on you. So I think that's kind of a helpful to understand the sort of asymmetries and differences that arise in how people experience objectification. Uh so I think right. that yeah, that's interesting, partly to help us understand things like pornography and to understand sort of other ways that the social fabric kind of influences how objectification seems. Right, great. So I'm, I want to sort of skip ahead because you yeah. you have a chapter on pornography and there's a yeah. chapter on sex work, and both of those are in, um, uh, sites in the book where the interests in philosophical questions about sex. Um, sort of intersect with uh, some of your broader concerns in philosophy of economics and in moral philosophy more generally. But um, I wanted to make sure that we got to talking about um, uh, your treatment of, in the middle chapters, as yeah. it were, on um, about love. So uh, again, I suspect that um, listeners are going to be familiar with Harry Frankfurt and some other sort of well-known mm-hmm. 20th century discussions um, about love and particularly um I think it's fairly standard these days, at least in uh, a, a certain tradition within uh, Western philosophical thinking, mm-hmm. to talk about love in terms of sort of two central theoretical approaches, the, the sort of union view and then the, the concern uh, 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 view. Um, you devote chapters to each and then problematize them both and then um, uh, sort of carve out uh, – a, a, a different kind of um, line according to which uh, we might have to just face, I guess, what some people will find uh, to be a, a unhappy fact, namely that love might not be special after all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so can you tell us how that, the, 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 that series of arguments run in the book? Yeah. So um, when I started teaching this class, I was think love was not the thing I was mostly working on. So I had to think like, how to approach this? And you know, what, what are theories of love? Why do people have theories of love? And so as I was talking about before, one kind of answer that I, came, that I came to think was true was that partly there exists to help us understand like why are intimate caring relationships, why and how they are different from the relationships we might have in public life, uh, which are more individualistic. And so, yeah, as you said, I can examine both the union theory and the kind of caring concern theory. Um, in the case of the union theory, uh, I talk about the idea that the if you take the idea, if you take seriously this concept of merging interests, then I think you run into problems with the possibility of conflicting and divergent interests and desires. And especially you run into a challenge about how to come up with fair and equal ways of um, meeting everyone's needs in those contexts. So I talk for, so in, in Robert Nozick's sort of development of the union theory, he talks about what's called the we. So it's a nice formulation, right? So the idea that two people come together and when they love each other, they they merge, they form this new entity called a we. And so, of course, there's been a lot written on what is the we and how do we understand it and what what is it? And to me, the most difficult and complicated issue that comes up in understanding the we is in understanding, like I said, the possibility of conflicting interests on the part of the people in a relationship and how those get resolved or responded to. So I talk mm-hmm. about an example in the book of Morgan and Nico. So all these na- I chose all these names to be um, gender neutral. Uh, and Morgan, Nico gets a job offer in a faraway city and really wants to move, thinks it'd be the best thing. And Morgan has a bunch of family and friends in their home city, really wants to stay put. So they have really a deep 
difference uh, in what they want to do and what would be probably good for them. So the union theory. So how does the union theory tell us to think about a situation like that? Well, the first kind of idea is that um, they should be adopting one another's desires because they're in this sort of we together, which is a nice idea. But I think if you really adopt that idea, you lose the possibility of saying that no matter what they do, one of them has done something for the other one. Right. So if they end up moving, I think you want to say like, well, Morgan really, you know, did something nice for Nico in the sense that they moved. And maybe next time it should be, you know, Morgan's turn to get their way. Uh, and that that's important to keep track of. But if you really think that they've merged their interests, then you kind of can't keep track of that. Right. So if you if you think of the we, some people have said, well, the we is kind of a, you put all the desires and interests together. And so I think, well, if you really put all the desires and interests of Morgan and Nico sort of into one basket, as it were, then they're, the coupledom starts to seem like uh, an ambivalent person, right? They want to move and they don't want to move. And now when you're ambivalent, you know, normally it's the strongest desire that wins out. So that raises the challenge that maybe the person in the relationship that has the strongest interests or happens to have very strong opinions, you know, would just always get their way, which I think would be a bad result. And especially in a culture where women are often socialized to be deferential, um, you might get the result that in a heterosexual marriage, uh, the uh, a woman might just not get her way as often because she's been socialized already to prioritize the needs and interests of the other person. Um, so, you know, you might think that the caring concern theory would be better on this score because caring concern theory says that, um, you know, love is about sort of how you relate to another person, which is different, right? Because it's no longer merging. It's about one person relating to another. So that's good. I think it sort of preserves an important kind of individuality. But I think there too, you run into a similar kind of problem, at least with the kind of caring concern theory that someone like Harry Frankfurt has talked about. So Frankfurt talks about love as volitional, where one person's will is structured in a way that they want to do things for the other person. Uh, and they want to their their will is structured so that they are um, volitionally uh, oriented toward caring about the other person's well being, and I think that um, again, if you think about how that works when you have conflicting and divergent interests, it's almost like you have to take the other person's well being on board as one of your interests, and that seems to kind of, I think, eliminate the distinction between like self-interested and other regarding. Right. So, uh, you know, maybe Morgan has to, has to think, well, it would be good for Nico to move. So I better want, I better want the outcome in which Nico gets to move now. But if Morgan wants the outcome in which Nico wants to move, then when they move again, you get that result that Morgan's getting what they want. So you lose the sense that like, well, this was a bad outcome for Morgan and Morgan should get some consideration next time. So I think both of these theories kind of render it obscure how we might talk about like fairness when, when people in relationships have these divergent um, interests. And so um, in that last chapter, I try to talk about like what I think we do need in understanding like I was saying before, but, you know, how can the family life, how can family life be this zone of separateness, right? So I think those two theories, you know, they maybe worked better in this, in the patriarchal heteronormative context, or at least they had, they, they had, they fit with some of the expectations of that context. But once you move to equality, I don't think they fit because they, I think, really obscure these questions of fairness um, in relationships. And so I think what you do want is something like, you know, balancing, you know, taking things in their appropriate weight. You know, if if Morgan, if they move, right, then maybe they do something where Morgan gets to have their own way next time. Like there's like an appropriate kind of balance between whose interests are being satisfied. Uh, Andrea Westland talks about what she calls shared egalitarian deliberation. So I think those are the right concepts that we want to use in having fairness and equality in these in these areas. But I think, as you were saying, 
if you adopt that framework, I think it really does make love a lot like other kinds of relationships. So, I mean, that's something you would want with your friends too. You know, you do things for your friends and then you want your friends to do things for you, but nobody wants to be, you know, steamrolled over and nobody wants to make themselves into a doormat, right? So what you're always looking for is a way that everybody can have the things they want and need in the relationship. Um, but I think, as you were saying, that kind of makes love just into a lot of other kinds of warm relationships. And so, um, which I think is fine. I think it's actually, I think in our modern context, it may be even commitment that we are struggling to understand even more than love. But that's not something I have thought deeply about yet. Right, right, right. Excellent. So, um Good. Just again, there's a just so the audience knows there's a lot in the book that we're not um, uh, we're not able to get to, um, and so um, w- one discussion that um, uh, was uh, of interest to me. And by the way, we, we've had Elizabeth break on the program, so oh, you have great. a chapter about yeah. um, marriage and promise breaking. Mm-hmm. But I want to make sure that we um, uh, we have time to explore uh, the chapter that you have on. Um, ethical non-monogamy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I, at least uh, my uh, <laughs> my introduction, such as it was, uh, to these sort of philosophical issues about monogamy and particularly the connections between uh, conceptions of monogamy and conceptions of marriage, uh, you know, came from Bertrand Russell. I suspect oh, yeah. I'm not alone in this. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, who's, you know, uh, you know, admirable in all kinds of ways, but maybe not in his own yeah. behavior in these matters. Um, huh. uh, I actually went to college with somebody who had a grandmother who had an affair with Bertrand oh, Russell, if you can believe that. So, <laughs> <Russian> <laughs> <fame>. <laughs> so um, but, you know, can you tell us a little bit about um, uh, that, that concept of, uh, non-monogamy as an ethical option, and maybe um, at least you in some parts of the chapters, you know, there might be some reason to think that um, uh, in certain contexts, non-monogamy might not might be more than merely permissible. I mean, it might even yeah. be positively good, right? Yep. So, can you tell us a little bit about about that? Yeah. So, ethical non-monogamy can take all kinds of different forms. You know, sometimes it involves sort of people who are in a primary relationship who then have love or sex with other people occasionally. Um, sometimes it involves something more like polyamory, where you have more than two people who are in a committed, kind of loving, ongoing relationship. Um, one of the things that uh, is really interesting about polyamory is the kind of values of trust and consent that go into making it work. So practitioners of ethical non-monogamy talk a lot about, you know, how to make ethical non-monogamy work so that it works for everyone. And that really requires a lot of sort of ongoing conversation and making sure that people are okay with things. And, you know, one of the things that proponents of of non-monogamy sometimes talk about is that, uh, you know, given the failures of monogamy, I mean, many people... uh, monogamy often fails either because a relationship ends or because someone cheats. And, you know, people who are proponents of ethical ethical non-monogamy will sometimes say, you know, we're doing the same things. We're just being honest and open and caring about it. And, uh, you know, if if your relationship may be ending because of the way your – Oh, your way of relating to one another sexually has become. So I mentioned in the book, the article in the New York Times magazine, where they interviewed a bunch of different couples, sort of why they got involved in this practice, you know, and some of them talk about uh, having been with one partner for a long time and the kind of ways that your sexual interest in the other person changes over time. And you can, you know, being with another person, it doesn't have to be just that you're interested in that other person. You know, sometimes having relationships outside your primary relationship causes you to see your primary person differently. So like some theorists think, you know, excessive closeness can be challenging for sexual desire because sexual desire kind of requires you to see this person as separate from yourself, as different, as um, uh, apart from you in a certain deep way. And that too much comfort, or I don't want to say comfort, but like too much closeness of a certain kind um, could maybe be bad for that. Now, if you then introduce non-monogamy into that kind of context, like I said, it could be about, um, you know, developing a different way of relating to that primary person where you now see them as like, oh my God, like they are this exciting sexual person. 
you just see them differently than you would if you were just being monogamous with them. Um, and then, uh, you know, people who practice polyamory will say, you know, in addition that, um, you know, uh, if love and sex are good things, you know, it can only be good to have more of them. And, you know, maybe this idea of jealousy, you know, sometimes people associate jealousy with um, intensity of feeling like they think jealousy is a kind of um, indicator of how much the person cares about them. Uh, in the book I talk about, uh, I think it's the woman who wrote the ethical slut. And she talks about uh, for her non-monogamy was part of her feminism. She thought, you know, nobody owns my body and mm -hmm. um, it's actually makes no sense when people associate jealousy with intensity of feeling. They don't need to go together. And if you love someone, wouldn't you want them to experience the things that would make them happy? And if that includes having love and sex with someone else, maybe you want them to have that experience. Um, so in the book, I talk about uh, this discussion of the sort of values that structure polyamory. And then I also talk about um, this idea that Elizabeth Emmons calls the paradox of prevalence. So she talks about the idea that polyamory or ethical non-monogamy in general might be threatening to people partly because it seems like it's an option for everyone. Like it seems like maybe something that anyone would want or maybe wants the wrong word, but um, it, it, monogamy is so challenging. Right. The fact that if, if non-monogamy is an option, it might just sort of destroy the practice of monogamy altogether. And so that's threatening. And she talks about whether we should see it as universalizing in that sense, like something that could be for everyone, or whether we should think of it as in a more, a more minoritizing way of, um, well, it's something that would be good for some people. So I think one of the things you were saying in your question was, about, um, you know, maybe it's not just permissible, but even a good thing, you know, and I think, sure, if you're talking about, um, you know, uh, a question of whether to stay with someone or, or, or stay with someone and become non-monogamous, right, or break up, then for sure, right, it could be a wonderful thing to be able to stay with them and not break up. Um, and then in terms of this universalizing and minoritizing, I think, you know, I, I think it's a really interesting question of whether it would it would work for everyone in the sense that these values, this kind of open communication and trust that's really required. Like, I wonder myself, like, is that something everyone either has or wants to have? Or is that something some people that's not part of how they want to relate? So, you know, you might have a relationship where you naturally fall into very open communication and trust, and it makes this seem very accessible to you. But you might have a relationship where, you know, you're, maybe you're, you don't have a shared background. And so you don't have as much of a shared understanding and trust, or maybe you don't like, you know, constant communicating and asking questions. You just want to be with that person. So I think that's fine too. Like, I don't, I don't know. I think it's really interesting in the future to think about whether non-monogamy will become something that lots and lots of people do, or whether it will always stay something that's, you know, only accessed by a certain number of people. Oh, fabulous. Um, you know, Patricia, you've been very generous with your time. Um, so, you know, I wanted to ask, um, you know, and first, congratulations on writing a book. You Thank know, you. it's it's uh, it's it's not just writing a book, but writing this book, um, because, you know, um, sometimes uh, one reads um, books that have the word introduction somewhere in their title mm. or subtitle. And um, what one gets is um, an introduction in the sense that, you um, you know, you don't learn much. It's written strictly for students who don't know a lot of philosophy. Right. Um, but that's not what this book is. This, this book is an introduction in the sense that it is also, uh, it's an accessible introduction and something that even philosophers uh, who know a lot about moral and political topics um, can um, uh learn uh, about new areas where uh, some of those concerns um, come to the fore and the different contours that they have uh, when they arise uh, in the context of sex and love. So um, th that was uh, um, uh, one of the really rewarding aspects uh, of 
of reading your book. At Thank least, you so uh, much. That's case. such a great, that's great to hear. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so uh, I know this is a cruel question to ask somebody on the heels of uh, having completed a book. Um, can you tell us w- what's your next project? Are you oh, going to yeah. continue in this I or have... move on to other topics? I have lots of next projects. Um, so Excellent. I have the next thing I want to do in philosophy of sex and love is actually going to be to say more about the social context of objectification. So I mentioned, you know, the sort of reasons pers- people choose or don't choose to be objectified. So I have a project sort of related to that. And then I mentioned also the collaborative project about love bioethics. And then I also have a just a completely different kind of um, project I want to work on about optimization. So at the University of Waterloo, we have a lot of students who are studying computer science and math, and I teach them, you know, ethics. And um, often they come to me and, and they say, well, you know, if we're studying consequentialism and its critics, <laughs> they say to me, well, you know, everything's an optimization problem if you frame it correctly. So <laughs> I don't think that's true. Like, I'm not a consequentialist. I don't think that's really right. But I think it's a really, I don't think it's an interesting question to say, like, in what sense that's not right, or if everything is frameable as an optimization problem, you know, what are the reasons you might want or not want to frame something as an optimization problem? So that's kind of the next big, big project that I'm going to be doing. Oh, that's fascinating. Um, uh, well, fabulous. Uh, I'll keep an eye out uh, for uh, the the products of those uh, those efforts. Um, but for now, I, I just want to thank you uh, for taking the time today to thank talk you about so your much. New this book. has been great. Thank you so much. Oh, great. And um, thank you, listener, for for joining us uh, for our discussion of Patricia Marino's new book, which is titled Philosophy of Sex and Love, An Opinionated Introduction. It's just been published by Routledge. Thank you for tuning in to New Books in Philosophy. Bye for now.